This evening's talk is about kama, or the Sanskrit word karma. And uh, beginning with some words from the Buddha. All beings are owners of their kama, heirs of their kama, born of their kama, related to their kama, supported by their kama. And beginning uh, this evening by saying something that I found to be very helpful and supportive throughout the various phases and stages of my practice over the years as I began to connect with and more deeply understand the teaching of Kama. And this is that the teaching, the teaching about Kama, offers and brings to an ever clearer light a path of practice that isn't based on fear of or belief in any higher authority or any supreme being, but rather founded on a clear understanding of the natural cause and effect, the law, the natural law of cause and effect as it relates to all things, all phenomena, and particularly as it relates to human behavior. Consequently, the teaching on Kama is not so much something to be believed in as it is to be understood as we come to see and know it in operation. As a Western woman, I think I can safely say this for most all of us, all of us who have been primarily been brought up and conditioned in Western-oriented countries. And I think it's also safe to say this for those who have been brought up and acculturated at least in good part in various Asian cultures. And this is that it's been kind of a relief to discover that it turns out Kama is not some unreachable or some strange concept. The teaching relevancy and the understanding of Kama, which is one of the Buddha's central themes, is really, it's really quite accessible and actually even quite ordinary. And maybe even so ordinary that it somehow may elude our very complicated minds. So what is it? What is Kama? Etymologically, or the root word of Kama is action or deed, as uh, it's often translated. In the context of the Dhamma, it's defined more specifically and clearly as action based on intention. 
Another way of looking at and understanding this is action based on motivation. In English, the word motivation has a somewhat deeper or somewhat subtler meaning than does the word intention. The motivation in the mind behind or underneath or preceding the intention. Motivation or intention is what leads to deeds willfully done, deeds done through volition. In the Buddhist teaching, kama refers only to intentional or volitional action. Intention, intentional or willful action is the mental factor responsible for kama. So, kama is intention, which includes will, choice, and decision. The mental impetus which leads to actions, both creative and destructive actions. This is really the essence of kama. And words from the Buddha. Monks or yogis, it is intention, I say, that is kama. Having willed, we create kama through body, speech, and mind. (coughs) There are two sorts of volitional action that come from two flavors of motivation or intention. Wholesome motivation, wholesome intention, leads us to choose to act or speak in a wholesome way. And unwholesome motivation, or unwholesome intention, leads us to decide to act or speak in an unwholesome way. So we could say wholesome intention, or wholesome motivation, is wholesome karma. And unwholesome intention is unwholesome kama. Kama is a law of nature, the way of things, the law of cause and effect, cause and result. Just like a rubber ball that's thrown against a wall bounces back, skillful, unskillful, or neutral intention and action generates inevitable consequences. The law of karma is one of the fundamental natural laws through which we create vastly different realities. As we experientially, through our own direct immediate experience, begin to understand the law of karma, how these consequences are created, combined, and intensified throughout our life is clarified. His Holiness the Dalai Lama said, it is more important to understand kama than emptiness. Something that I've discovered by way of my own deep practice 
discovered it to be really quite amazing and illuminating, uh, is that in the context of the teachings and in our practice of the Dhamma, intention has a much subtler meaning than it commonly has uh, in the way that it's used and understood in everyday English. We usually think of intention as the link between internal thought and its resultant external actions, such as, like, I did that intentionally. Or we might ask, is that really what you meant to say? The Buddha's teaching tells us that all actions, speech, and all thought, no matter how fleeting, as well as the responses of the mind, the responses of the heart to the various experiences and sensations received through each of the sense stores, eye, ear, nose, tongue, touch, body, and mind, that all of this, without exception, contains elements of intention. This means that the mind subtly, or sometimes not so subtly, volitionally or willfully chooses objects of awareness and reaps the karmic fruits of these choices. So in other words, intention is the fact which leads the mind uh, to turn towards or to turn away from various potential objects of awareness. Intention is the factor which leads the mind, the heart, to proceed or not proceed in a particular direction. From this perspective, it's intention that guides or governs how the mind, the heart, responds to stimuli. As our practice deepens, we begin to see and to know more and more clearly through our own direct experience that intention is the force that organizes the movements of the mind, which means that intention is a primary aspect of what determines the states that are experienced by the mind, the heart. The Buddha spoke many times about the fact that the motivation or the intention that leads to action is the mental impetus that is the determinant of our karmic fruit. In other words, the motivation, the intention that leads to action is what determines the result of our action. Basically, this is the teaching of cause and effect, cause and result. Inherent in each intention or motive in the mind, each intention or motive in the heart, no matter how subtle, is an energy that is powerful enough to bring about subsequent results. It's possible to actually experience this process occurring when mindfulness is accompanied 
by a deep, clear, and strong kanika samadhi, momentary samadhi. And it's possible to actually experience this process occurring even on a very, very subtle level when clear, strong mindfulness is accompanied by a well-developed access concentration. So, in light of this, consider that even just one tiny thought that might not even be a particularly important thought isn't without some consequence. It will result in at least a tiny speck of kama that's added to the stream of conditions which shape one's mental activity. If this speck is practiced repeatedly over and over again in the mind or expressed repeatedly through external expression in speech or actions, the result, the karmic result, is strengthened in the form of one's character traits and even through our bodily makeup, such as various physical expressions and even our physical features, as well as in the form of our various verbal and active responses or reactions in relationship to the outer world. Even the responses and reactions that come to us, that we, in a sense, uh, draw to us from external sources can sometimes show up in similar repetitive ways and be strengthened. They can be strengthened when we're unaware, when we're not mindful and are repeatedly acting out of practicing the specks of mental kama that add to the stream of conditions that shape our mental activity. There's a Tibetan teaching that says something like, everything rests on the tip of motivation. Or we could say everything rests on the tip of intention. A painful or destructive kama, a painful or destructive intention, doesn't have to be on a gross level for it to be effective. I remember once, um, many years ago, <clears throat> when I was uh, sitting a retreat, I got a note that was uh, not pleasing to me at all. And I proceeded then, after I read this note, to uh, angrily uh, tear up the piece of paper that the note was written on. Even though that piece of paper had absolutely no importance uh, in and of itself, the action of tearing it up angrily certainly had uh, some effect on the quality of my mind, the quality of my heart. In contrast to this, uh, uh, more recently, uh, here in this retreat, I one day took a note off the uh, board, a notice uh, off the board uh, in the dining room that had expired, and I simply threw it in the wastebasket. 
with that action uh, producing a very different effect on the quality of the mind, the quality of the heart. If we repeatedly act out of angry intention, the effects of this type of accumulation will become clearer and clearer and may develop to a more and more significant level. In the chain or the wheel of dependent origination uh, or what is sometimes called the wheel of interdependent arising, which is the process of how the experiences of dukkha or ease that we have uh, uh, via the six sense doors come to be, how they manifest and then cease to be, Kama, specifically in terms of intention, is called the agent which fashions the mind. So in light of this discussion, I'd like to read some words from uh, Buddhist scholar Venerable Venerable Peyuto. And this is from his book, Good, Evil, and Beyond, Kama in the Buddha's Teaching. Consider the specks of dust which come floating unnoticed into a room. There isn't one speck that is void of consequence. It's the same for the mind. But the weight of that consequence, in addition to being dependent on the amount of mental dust, is also related to the quality of the mind. For instance, Specks of dust which alight on a road surface have to be of a very large quantity before the road will seem to be dirty. Specks of dust which alight onto a floor, although of a much smaller quantity, may make the floor look dirtier than the road. A smaller amount of dust accumulating on a tabletop will seem dirty enough to cause irritation. An even smaller amount alighting on a mirror will seem dirty <clears throat> will seem dirty and will interfere with its functioning. A tiny speck of dust on a spectacle lens is perceptible and can impair vision. In the same way, motivation or intention, no matter how small, is not void of fruit. As the Buddha said, all kama, whether wholesome or unwholesome, bears fruit. There's no comma, no matter how small, which is void of fruit. In the same way, the mind has varying levels of refinement or clarity, depending on accumulated comma. As long as the mind is being used on a coarse level, no problem may be apparent. But if it's necessary to use the mind on a refined level, Previous unskillful kama, even on a minor scale, may become an obstacle. <clears throat> There's a, a wonderful section of a short suttas in the Samyutta Nikaya called the Connected Discourses in the Woods, a few of which I uh, offered in an an earlier Dhamma talk in this retreat, uh, where various woodland-dwelling devas 
approach and speak to certain monks who are practicing in these same woodland thickets. And I'd like to share uh, just a part of one of these same uh, short dialogues as an illustration regarding what we're exploring this, this evening. And this is the verse uh, that I've already shared, uh, which is about a, a bhikkhu, about a monk, um, who after returning from his uh, daily alms round and then eating his meal in the woodland thicket where he practiced every day, he would go down after that uh, to a nearby pond and sniff a lotus. And when the deva who lived in that same woodland thicket saw this, she thought, having received a meditation subject from the Buddha and entering into the forest to meditate, this bhikkhu is instead meditating on the scent of flowers. If his craving for scent increases, it will destroy his welfare. Let me draw near and reproach him. So, out of compassion and wishing to stir up a sense of urgency in this monk uh, to practice, the deva addressed the monk as follows. And this is uh, an excerpt from this uh, short sutta. And the deva speaking to the monk. When you sniff this lotus flower, an item that has not been given, this is one factor of theft. You, dear sir, are a thief of scent. And the bhikkhu responds, I do not take, I do not damage, I sniff the lotus from afar. So for what reason do you say that I am a thief of scent? One who digs up the lotus stalks, one who damages the flowers, one of such rough behavior, why is he not spoken to? And the deva responds, When a person is rough and fierce, badly soiled like a nursing cloth, I have nothing to say to him, but it is to you that I ought to speak. For a person without blemish, always in quest of purity, even a mere hair's tip of evil appears as big as a cloud. The understanding that various experiences of stress, various experiences of suffering, and the experience of ease are the result of our kama, the result of our actions, our actions of thought, of speech, and deed, right here, right here and now, and uh, in this lifetime and right here and now on this very day. And on, back, and back, and back. This is Kama. This is our Kama. We're born, we spring out of the womb of Kama, so to say. And even though we may or may not like it at times, we are the undeniable heirs of our kama. So, for instance, just as soon as we've spoken words or, or performed any particular action, we've totally lost control over it. And yet, it remains with us 
and in some way inevitably returns to us as what we could call our due inherent our due inheritance so what does this mean we could say with everything that happens and the resultant ease or dis-ease in our mind in our heart that this ease or dis-ease is the outcome meaning that it the response or the reaction in our mind in relationship to all of the internal and external happenings that we experience that produces ease or dis-ease in the mind in the heart in other words our suffering and our happiness in this life in any given moment is due to our motivations due to our intentions and the consequent actions meaning our wholesome response or unwholesome reactions to internal and external phenomena our ease and happiness or dis-ease and suffering is not due to our wishes not due to our hopes and our dreams for ourselves and not due to some other person or some outer antagonistic or seemingly mysterious strange or foreign world and again some words from his holiness the dalai lama happiness is not something ready made it comes from your own actions as awakening beings our practice continues to develop our capacity to see the truth of how things occur how things unfold and to see their nature as this comes clearer and clearer through our direct experience within our own body mind continuum we quite naturally find that the intentions the motivations in the mind more and more often lead to wholesome responsive creative choices rather than to unwholesome reactive destructive choices in its powerful potential to bring good or bad results kama can be compared to food some foods are good bringing and promoting health when we eat them at the right time and in the right amount and some foods are harmful and bring disease or may even be poisonous for us maybe even deadly so we pay attention to the thoughts and the intention behind underneath the potential action and feed ourselves and thus others healthy food and consequently create healthy karma
One of the great benefits of our practice comes as a sense of fulfillment, joy, and harmony as we come to understand and live our understanding, knowing that we, in fact, are the owners or the heirs of our kama, and that in this knowing, we can and we do actively create and fashion our life. And that the more we clearly, the more clearly we know our motivations, the more clearly we know our intentions, the more clearly we have the possibility of creating a deeper, sustaining, and more pervasive experience of well-being throughout our life. Understanding the law of kama and living our understanding offers us the potential experience of a sense of inner peace and a sense of well-being and wholeness. If we live in ignorance, meaning ignoring or misunderstanding with the way of things, we're living in conflict and disharmony with the way of things. And so we're bound then to experience fear, anguish, grief, dissonance, and confusion. As this understanding takes root in us, it actually has the power to free us from fear. When, in fact, with everything that happens within us and around us, we begin to see that we only meet ourselves, we really only meet our own mind, what is there to fear? The heart, the mind, begins to relax. And we begin to know that we can change our mind. We truly begin to know that we're not trapped running around and around on the karmic wheel. It's as though we're all artists. But instead of canvas and paint, or clay, or marble, or music, or pencil, pen, and paper as our creative medium, It's our very mind, body, and heart, and the immediacy of our life experience that are the materials for our creative expression. And so again, one of the great benefits of our practice comes as a sense of fulfillment, joy, and harmony as we come to understand and live our understanding, knowing that we, in fact, are the owners or the heirs of our kama, and that in knowing this, we can and we do actively create and fashion our life, and that the more clearly we know our motivations, our intentions, the more clearly we have the possibility of creating a deeper sustaining and more pervasive experience of well-being throughout our life.
The Buddha considered mental kama to be the most important and the most far-reaching in its effect. Because as well as mental kama being what shapes our inner reality, thought precedes all of our actions of body and speech. The flavor of our thoughts, wholesome or unwholesome, are conditioned by our intentions, our motivations. Our motivations are conditioned by our view, our understanding, with our views often showing up as our beliefs and our preferences, which are what then direct our motivations, what direct our intentions and the resultant thoughts, which then potentially flow out into words and actions. So, just simply and briefly, what does this mean? If we cling to the view, the understanding of ourself, other beings and things, and even situations, various experiences and places, as being independent, separate, and static, meaning, meaning unchanging, we're then motivated by misunderstanding. We're motivated by ignorance. We're ignoring the truth of things. Consequently, we're motivated by what's called wrong view in the Buddha's teachings. And with this wrong view, this misunderstanding, our intentions, our motivations, are coming from a self-centered, disconnected, non-harmonious, unhealthy, unwholesome place and will inevitably bring suffering to ourself and to others. If we have the understanding, if one is experientially through practice growing into the understanding that ourselves, other beings, all things, situations, experiences, and places are totally interdependent and arise only because of various causes and conditions coming together. And that, in fact, the causes and conditions themselves are also always in flux. That nothing, no thing, abides independently or separately or is static then our intentions, our motivations, come out of understanding the truth of the way of things. Our intentions, our motivations, come out of what is called right view. And so our thoughts and the subsequent flow of words and actions all come from a place of harmony and a lightness of being. And our more and more often appropriately responsive to any given situation and consequently are beneficial in both overt and subtle ways in relationship to ourselves and in relationship to others.
and from the Buddha, from the Anguttara Nikaya. Monks, yogis, when there is wrong view, bodily kama created as a result of that view, verbal kama created as a result of that view, and mental kama created as a result of that view, as well as intentions, aspirations, wishes, and mental proliferations, all are productive of results that are undesirable, unpleasant, disagreeable, yielding no, no benefit but conducive to suffering. On what account? On account of that pernicious view. It is like a margosa seed or the seed of a bitter gourd planted in moist earth. The soil and water taken in as nutriment are wholly converted into a bitter taste, an acrid taste, a foul taste. Why is that? Because the seed is not good. Monks, yogis, when there is right view, bodily kama created as a result of that view, verbal kama created as a result of that view, mental kama created as a result of that view, as well as intentions, aspirations, wishes, and mental proliferations, all are yielding of results that are desirable, pleasant, agreeable, producing benefit, conducive to happiness. On what account? On account of those good views. It is like a seed of the sugar cane, a seed of wheat, a fruit seed planted in moist earth. The water and soil taken in as nutriment are wholly converted into sweetness, into refreshment, into delicious taste. On what account is that? On account of that good view. An important aspect of right view in relationship to what we call self, what we call me, is at least uh, in part and very often uh, a reference to this body, as Sayadaw spoke about a bit in last evening's Dhamma talk, and as we explored in in an earlier Dhamma talk when we discussed that this body is actually not a solid something, but rather a process made up of many elements, with with each and all of these elements being in continual constant flux. So just briefly now, um, what I'm referring to are the experiential characteristics of the four great elements that we come to know directly through our practice. And just a brief review of these experiential characteristics that we do and that each of you have been experiencing directly through your practice. And just to say the earth element, water element, fire element, wind element are concepts. I'm not talking about the concepts. I'm talking about the direct experiential characteristics. So the characteristics that we experience that are in the context of the earth element are hardness, 
roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, lightness. The experiential characteristics that we know through our practice of the water element are flowing and cohesion. The experiential characteristics that we know of the fire element are heat or warmth, cold and coolness. And the experiential characteristics that we know through our practice uh, of the wind or the air element are supporting and pushing. This experiential, non-ordinary understanding of the body can be an important and illuminating step on the path to right view in relationship to directly, experientially understanding not-self, impersonality. It's in this light that the Buddha spoke about actions without an actor, doings without a doer. Within what is essentially an impersonal karmic process, our actions are like seeds that are planted and then transformed by the shifting patterns of our life. Some seeds are cultivated and nourished, and some seeds may be dormant for many, many years, maybe even many lifetimes until the exact combination of causes and conditions arise to germinate these seeds. And always the fruit will bear a direct relationship to the seed. So an obvious and very clear metaphor that's often used in this context is that apple seeds will bring apples into the world, lettuce seeds will bring lettuce into the world, And if we plant poppy seeds, no matter how much we might hope, lettuce will just not grow from poppy seeds. A loving act, at some point, at some point ends up bearing loving fruit. Angry or hateful acts at some point produce hateful fruit. And so again, the words from the Buddha that we began our evening with, all beings are owners of their kama, heirs of their kama, born of their kama, related to their kama, supported by their kama. An important and and maybe obvious point here is that not-self, impersonality behind our actions does not uh, discount our responsibility for the things that we do. Kama is a very powerful force that inevitably makes itself felt. So we need to couple our understanding of selflessness, our understanding of not-self, 
with a very mindful and respectful attention to our motivations and actions and their karmic fruit. When we begin to understand more deeply that kama is based on intention, based on motivation, we begin to see the enormous and important responsibility that we have to become aware of the intentions, to become aware of the motivations that precede our actions of mind, speech, and body. If we're unaware of the motives in our mind, when unwholesome, unskillful intentions arise, we may unmindfully act on them and then consequently create the conditions for immediate or future suffering. And from uh, words from Padmasambhava, who was said to have brought the Buddhist teachings to Tibet and Bhutan, he said, Though your vision is as vast as the sky, your attention to the law of karma, in, in Sanskrit, kama, should be as fine as a grain of barley flour. Mindfulness of our intentions before we speak or act, and also the awareness of the karmic fruit of our words and actions once they've been said and performed, has the effect of actually really, truly broadening our field of choice as we go on practicing to purify and transform the mind, to purify and transform the heart and the actions. So that, in fact, then we're not running on automatic, not running on habitual ways of thinking, speaking, and acting. When we mindfully experience the effects of our actions, we see, for instance, that extending generosity, loving kindness, and compassion towards others, it comes back to us. And we see and feel the effects of approaching the world with aggression, anger, judgment, greed, or grasping. An important point to consider in relationship to these teachings and practices is that it's not so important where your present suffering came from, but where you take it from here. Meaning, what's really most important is how you approach the situation in of this moment. So, for instance, the appropriate and healthy response and wholesome response to suffering, whatever the cause of it may be, is compassion. As we traverse this path, we clearly begin to see and know that 
there's a refuge, and I spoke very briefly about this uh, last week sometime, that there's this a refuge, so to say, a refuge where the suffering of confusion and fear and anger and resistance, discontent, clinging, it's a very long list, can be dispelled. And this, and this refuge is through our good deeds. Refuge from this perspective is in wholesome motivations, wholesome intentions, thoughts and words, and performing wholesome actions. As we take this refuge, there comes to be a growing confidence in the great protecting power of good deeds that we've done in the past, and in uh, and, and a growing courage uh, to perform more wholesome deeds right now, even in the midst of what might be some hardship in our current life. And of course, our practice itself, this amazing, incredible training of the mind and heart that we're all engaged in, is a very, very good deed, really the very best deed, and the essential ground for the blossoming of wholesomeness in through all aspects of our life. One of the things that's been uh, quite important for me in understanding Kama is that it's always the right time to perform wholesome actions. It's always the right time to do good deeds. It's never too late. Certainly many of us have been uh, conditioned with such things as, well, too bad, it's too late. Or maybe as we uh, age, we think, well, I'm too old. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. These things are absolutely not true. It's never too late and we're never too old. And so we practice this. And it becomes established in us. And it becomes a refuge. And at some point we know for sure, as was said by one of the Buddha's disciples, more and more ceases the misery and evil rooted in the past. And this present life, I try to make it spotless and pure. What else then can the future bring other than increase of the good? As this becomes more and more a certainty in our mind, the mind, the heart, becomes more tranquil and serene. And through our practice, we gain the great strength of a calm and focused mind and a patient heart and the growing evenness and balance of equanimity in relationship to all the various challenges and difficulties that come up in our practice and that come up in our life as a whole. As the refuge of doing good deeds becomes our way 
our deeds become our friend rather than our adversary. Even if sometimes the immediate result of our deeds seem to bring us maybe some sorrow or some sort of discomfort or pain, maybe through the way that others treat us, or through maybe some upheaval or some turmoil in our life, or maybe in some surprising or some unrecognizable phenomena that shows up in our practice. And sometimes the results of our good deeds may uh, not be at all what we expected, not maybe what we had in mind, the results that seem maybe contrary to what we might think our intention, our, our motivations were. Many years ago, uh, I had a therapist who would sometimes say to me, or actually more accurately say for me at appropriate times, this isn't what I had in mind, <laughs> which would always kind of stop me in my tracks and move me to take a look in that moment, uh, to take a look at my motivations and at my expectations. And most importantly in those moments, to simply be with what was occurring, with as open a heart and as clear a mind as was possible at that time. If we make suffering our teacher, then it actually becomes our friend. And maybe sometimes a kind of stern and in a certain way quite a demanding teacher, yet potentially a very truthful and well-intentioned friend. We learn about ourselves, which seems for almost all of us, if not all of us, to be our most difficult subject. The teachings of Kama and the understanding therein can imbue us with a powerful motivation to free ourselves from Kama, to free ourselves from the actions that again and again throw us into repeated suffering, to free ourselves in this very life from repeatedly being born or being reborn repeatedly into the realm of suffering. I'd like to now uh, uh, read a, uh, a section or some excerpts out of a book uh, called And There Was Light by a man uh, named Jacques Lucieran. Jacques was a man <clears throat> who was involved in the French underground movement during the Second World War. And this is, uh, these are some excerpts from his autobiography that very beautifully illuminates this discussion about Kama. And it's not a classically Buddhist. It's just what it is. It was a great surprise to me to find myself blind. And being blind was not at all as I imagined it. Nor was it as the people around me seemed to think it. They told me that to be blind meant not to see. Yet how was I to believe them when I saw? 
Not at once, I admit. Not in the days immediately after the operation. For at that time, I still wanted to use my eyes. I followed their usual path. I looked in the direction where I was in the habit of seeing before the accident. And there was anguish, a lack, something like a void which filled me with what grown-ups call despair. Finally, one day, and it was not long in coming, I realized that I was looking in the wrong way. It was simple as that. I was making something uh, very like the mistake people make who change their glasses without adjusting themselves. I was looking too far off and too much on the surface of things. At this point, some instinct made me change course. I began to look more closely, not at things, but at a world closer to myself, looking from an inner place to one further within, instead of clinging to the movement of sight towards the world outside. Immediately, the substance of the universe drew together, redefined and peopled itself anew. I was aware of a radiance emanating from a place I knew nothing about, a place which might as well have been outside me as within. But radiance was there, or to put it more precisely, light. It was a fact, for light was there. I felt indescribable relief and happiness so great it almost made me laugh. Confidence and gratitude came as if a prayer had been answered. I found light and joy at the same moment, and I can say without hesitation that from that time on, light and joy have never been separated in my experience. I have had them or lost them together. I saw light and went on seeing it, though I was blind. I said so, but for many years I did not say it very loud. Until I was nearly 14, I remember calling the experience which kept renewing itself inside me my secret and speaking of it only to my most intimate friends. I don't know whether they believed me, but they listened to me, for they were friends. And what I told them had a greater value than being merely true. It had the value of being beautiful, a dream, an enchantment, almost like magic. The amazing thing was that it was not magic for me at all, but reality. I could no more have denied it than people with eyes can deny that they see. I was not light myself, I knew that, but I bathed in it as an element which blindness had suddenly brought much closer. I could feel light rising, spreading, resting on objects, giving them form, then leaving them. Withdrawing or diminishing is what I mean, for the opposite of light was never present. Sighted people always talk about the night of blindness, and that seems to them quite natural. But there is no such night, for at every waking hour, and even in my dreams, I lived in a stream of light. Without my eyes, light was much more stable than it had been with them. As I remember it, there, was, there were no longer the same differences between things lighted brightly, less brightly, or not at all. I saw the whole world in light, existing through it and because of it. Still, there were times when the light faded, almost to the point of disappearing. It happened every time I was afraid. If instead of letting myself be carried along by confidence and throwing myself into things, I hesitated, calculated, 
thought about the wall, the half-open door, the key in the lock, if I said to myself that all these things were hostile and about to strike or scratch, then without exception I hit or wounded myself. The only way to move around the house, the garden, or the beach was by not thinking about it at all or thinking as little as possible. Then I moved between obstacles the way they say bats do. What the loss of my eyes had not accomplished was brought about by fear. It made me blind. Anger and impatience had the same effect, throwing everything into confusion. The minute before, I knew just where everything in the room was. But if I got angry, things got angrier than I. They went and hid in the most unlikely corners, mixed themselves up, turned turtle, muttered like crazy men, and looked wild. As for me, I no longer knew where to put hand or foot. Everything hurt me. This mechanism worked so well that I became cautious. When I was playing with my small companions, if I suddenly grew anxious to win, to be the first at all costs, then all at once I could see nothing. Literally, I went into fog or smoke. I could no longer afford to be jealous or unfriendly because as soon as I was, a bandage came down over my eyes and I was bound hand and foot and cast aside. All at once a black hole opened and I was helpless inside it. But when I was happy and serene, approached people with confidence and thought well of them, I was rewarded with light. So is it surprising that I loved friendship and harmony when I was very young? I always knew where the road was open and where it was closed. I had only to look at the bright signal which taught me how to live. All of us, whether blind or not, are terribly greedy. We want things only for ourselves. Even without realizing it, we want the universe to be like us and give us all the room in it. But a blind child learns very quickly that this cannot be. She or he has to learn it. For every time she or he forgets that she is not alone in it, the world, not alone in the world, she or he strikes against an object, hurts herself, hurts himself, and is called to order. But each time she or he remembers, she and he is rewarded for everything comes her way, for everything comes his way. In closing the talk this evening with some words from the Buddha. One should reflect repeatedly on one's own mind in this way. For a long time, the sanctity or purity of this mind has been destroyed by greed, by hatred, and by delusion. It is by mental defilement beings are defiled. It is by mental purification that beings are purified.
And the Buddha goes on to say, All conditions have mind as forerunner, mind as master, are accomplished by mind. Whatever one says or does with an unclear mind brings suffering in its wake, just as the cartwheel follows the ox's hoof. Whatever one says or does with a clear mind brings happiness in its wake, just as the shadow follows its owner. And let's sit silently for just a moment or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.